Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I'm Emma Winters, CMS's Communications Coordinator. In this episode, you'll hear me speak with Bishop Mark J. Seitz of El Paso, Texas. He has been forceful and compassionate in calls to protect the dignity of migrants, speaking out against detention and deportation. In recent months, he has worked with Hope Border Institute to build a border refugee assistance fund for asylum seekers forced to wait in Ciudad Juarez under the Remain in Mexico policy. In a recent pastoral letter, Night Will Be No More, Bishop Seitz reflected on the August 3 massacre in El Paso, examined the history of white supremacy in the borderlands, and offered a message of hope for a more just and merciful world. Now, here's my conversation with Bishop Seitz. Welcome. Nice to have you here, Emma. This is my first time in El Paso, and, you know, I've already experienced several warm welcomes. Good. Bienvenida. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to the border mass um, this weekend. Um, could you describe what this mass, which is literally on the U.S.-Mexico borderline, what it's like and why you come together for this mass with the Bishop uh, of Ciudad Juarez and Las Cruces and people on both sides of the border? Mm-hmm. Well, I might say that the annual border mass is the ideal situation and ideal place for a mass, because whenever we celebrate mass, there are borders that are being crossed, uh, because it brings the people of God from our disparate lives, coming from all different places, uh, together united in the body and blood of Jesus Christ and sharing in his the a paschal mystery so uh, what a what a wonderful thing when we gather on a, a literal national border we're going to be have the altar god willing if the waters don't rise right literally in the middle of the channel for the Rio Grande, Grande River and uh, you know, and we'll have people on the embankments. They're concrete embankments on either side. So on the south will be people from Ciudad Juarez and regions uh, surrounding it, and on the north side will be people from El Paso and around. Uh, of course, on our side there will be many immigrants and and others who are seeking a home here. And we'll probably see that on the other side, too, people from who are refugees waiting in Ciudad Juarez and hoping, praying that one day they'll be able to cross. When you celebrate Mass, you say, de facto, we are the people of God. And, and that's not the only border that's being crossed. Whenever you celebrate Mass, you're, you're crossing an even more important border, and that is between earth and heaven, because God is present there. Jesus, his son, who originally made that passage, you know, to become one of us, is joined with us. And the whole church in heaven is gathered there. Uh, it all happens on a border in a certain way, you know, and uh, we will recognize that. Of course, 
the uh, thing that we're going to be praying for, especially, is for the repose of the souls of all of those who have died seeking to cross our national border. Uh, and so many of them have died right here. Uh, I lost count, I'm sorry to say, but uh, I, I stopped counting at about nine people who drowned in our immigration canals, which are alongside the border trying to enter the United States this year. Nine who drowned. And then uh, the children like Felipe and Jacqueline, an eight and a nine-year-old who died of the flu because they were in Border Patrol hands and didn't get treatment soon enough. We'll be praying for hundreds of people who have died all across the border between Mexico and the United States simply in this last year. Uh, and uh, it's important that we do that, that we recognize that they're not just numbers, but on this All Souls Day to recognize that, that we've um, lost these most priceless treasures that God has given us and people who were simply fleeing from unlivable situations in their home countries and who um, instead of finding refuge uh, found death on our border uh, doesn't have to be that way you know this will not be uh, a protest action on the border not it, you know we're not bringing signs we're not going to be shouting slogans uh, we're there to pray. But we trust that when we bring to light this reality, that it will also make people aware that, as I said, it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to treat those who are fleeing here as though they are a threat to us. We don't have to force them into life-threatening situations in order to cross. Uh, although these things have become accepted as a normal, as a necessity, uh, the church needs to say, it should not be this way. Uh, and by coming together and showing that that border is, while it may be a, an important de demarcation point between one country and another, and another, it doesn't have to be treated the way it is. It should be a place of union. And uh, in July, you worked with uh, Hope Border Institute to, to start an emergency fund for people who are stuck in Mexico trying to access the U.S. asylum system. Um, have you witnessed the conditions for those asylum seekers who are being forced to wait in Juarez? And, and why did you feel called to start this fund um, across the border? Yes, I have witnessed what their situation is. I've been to Juarez several times in the last two months. And uh, it gives me great, great concern uh, what they're living there. It used to be when there was some kind of passage allowed for those asylum seekers that they would spend maybe a week in Juarez trying to figure out how to, how to cross, mm -hmm. you know. Now they're having to spend months there because the door has been effectively closed. 
uh, and there are a number of policies that contributed to that. Now we estimate that something like 20,000 people have just been bottled up there in Ciudad Juarez alone. I'm not talking about the rest of our 2,000-mile border. There are tens of thousands. But um, the uh, shelter capacity is only like a little over 2,000. So I visited uh, uh, a couple of shelters, and their situation is difficult, but people are heroically uh, responding. I guess I've been to several shelters, uh, parishes, uh, Protestant churches, uh, the Catholic Church has a shelter. Uh, we also have people in tents uh, right at the base of our bridges. These are primarily Mexicans who are seeking asylum in our country right now. And this is a new reality. The la it's taken place in the last month or so. Obviously, now that winter has reached here to our border region, it's more and more difficult for them. I'm very concerned about them. Last night, the temperature reached about uh, 32 degrees here on the border. Uh, if you've camped out in that weather before, you know you have to have the right equipment, right? Um, then there are the untold thousands who are in neither of those groups and are living on the streets of Ciudad Juarez, or perhaps they're pooling what few resources they have together and renting an apartment or a hotel. They're putting like 12 people in a small apartment. There's no social services. There are no social services reaching out to them. Um, they're probably leaving the kids there in the apartment while they go seek work to pay for the next month's rent. No one is watching those kids. No one is protecting those children. Uh, and those are the untold stories that I'm very, very concerned about. And I haven't been able to visit with them. I just know they're there. Uh, so uh, we're trying to respond to those situations and uh, people have been quite generous to the fund, although the need will outstrip whatever we raise. And, um, you know, there's so much to say about your recent pastoral letter, Night Will Be No More. I mean, I was very moved by it. I can only imagine it was a real bomb to your community um, here in El Paso. Um, but, but first, I just want to ask, you know, what was it like in the immediate aftermath of that, of that devastating massacre? And, you know, what were you hearing from your people in El Paso in the days after, from your priests, um, from the many families um, who call El Paso and the church home? This was one of those events. I, I think our listeners could probably begin to get a feel for it if they think about 9-11. Now, it wasn't on the 9-11 scale, right? But 9-11 had a way that just touched each of us personally, mm -hmm. especially people out east and in the New York area. But, but even beyond it, it, we all remember where we were and so on. It was kind of like that mm -hmm. here in El Paso. It, was, it, it, it turned our world upside down. Uh, the, the, the first reports... As is often the case in one of these events, is that they thought there were multiple shooters. It felt, and this happened with 9-11 as well, it felt like our city was under attack. And in a certain sense, it was. Um, 
a man who lived 700 miles away chose to come to El Paso and to target people. Why? Because they were immigrants, because they were Mexican in origin, because they had brown skin, and that's those are the ones he shot. And, and so, uh, the sense of vulnerability that it created for our community, and uh, particularly for people of Latino origin, is something that most of us have never uh, had to face. Um, and um, for us, it was extremely, what can I say, unsettling. In the days after the attack, uh, that very day, I was uh, out there. I went to the main community ho county hospital and and spent a good part of the day there. And then at the repatriation center where they uh, had the family members come and wait for news and so on. It was just such a horrendous day. Uh, people who just went out on a Saturday morning to buy something at Walmart, you know, uh, lost their life or were injured in ways that will affect them the rest of their life. It was an attack, uh, not only on individuals, it was an attack on our way of life, uh, on our sense of identity, uh, because we're a border city. We're, we're more than that. You know, people don't really understand what it means for us to be a border city. It means that we are one metropolitan community that has a line drawn across it. We were one community before there was a border here. Um, and we were proud Americans on this side, proud Mexicans on the other, and we're proud of each other <laughs> because we belong to both communities. You will be hard-pressed to find an El Paso one who doesn't have family in Ciudad Juarez mm -hmm. and vice versa. People live here, they work there. They, go, they live there, they go to school here. Um, we're, um, we're up. And, so, and also with Fort Bliss, which has 30,000 military people right in the middle of our city. People are coming from all over the country. And we don't see those people who are coming from outside of our place or our culture as, as foreign to us. They are people, we see it as our place to welcome them. And we want them to say, I feel like I found a new home when they come here. So when this man came and, and attacked people in the Walmart here on a normal Saturday morning because of who they were, uh, we, we've experienced it as something that was attacking our way of life and, and our identity as a place of welcome. Yeah. And I think that's where it is not too far off 9-11 because that was really an attack on identity. Yes. Um, and so is this. So I can see why. Certainly it would feel similar. Um, and obviously we were watching and thinking of you all and praying for you all um, in New York, but I still mm -hmm. know that you know, we can't imagine because this is your home and, and so many people's homes. So yeah. really appreciate you speaking, speaking to that. 
um, and, and, and in your letter, um, you chose um, Our Lady of Guadalupe as a person who could remind everyone that they matter. Um, and can you can you say a little bit about why Guadalupe reminds each of us of this, um, that Tuvales, as you say in your letter, so many times, which is good because I think everyone needs to hear that so many times. Yeah. Um, you you're you value you're you're a person of value. You count. Yeah. yeah. Um, why do you think she's the right person to sort of heal in this moment? Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting you said I chose Our Lady of Guadalupe, and my first response would be. No, Our Lady of Guadalupe chose us, <laughs> and that's the wonderful thing. But we know that yeah. that she chose us, and she, uh, from the time that uh, uh, the continent first um, uh, received the faith, uh, she was there, saying, "You know what? This faith isn't from the outside." This faith is from within. It's a fulfillment of everything that you've sought. And guess what? You're not alone, even in this difficult time in your life. Speaking to the, the Aztecs, she's saying, uh, I'm your mother. And you're dear to me. You, you matter. You count. And, uh, so how important is that message today uh, as we face this attack, um, which represents a broader issue that has you know, percolated under the surface of, American, of the American experience, sad to say, uh, this experience of uh, white supremacy. Um, so... It can seem so subtle, um, so hidden. Uh, it can seem like something that in our uh, advanced uh, age we, uh, we have surpassed or overcome. And then something like this happens. And, and you see that uh, it was a veneer in some ways. Uh, this man was not simply an isolated individual who was crazy. Mm -hmm. He was fed by this ideology of supremacy, which has various iterations, some of which are very out there um, and clear to anyone who would hear it, and others of which might seem more subtle, but which in a certain way, uh, give uh, mm, uh, give a certain acceptability, a sense of acceptability to the more extreme expressions of it. Whenever one says, what we're experiencing on the southern border is an invasion, that uh, the people coming across are criminals and rapists and highlights the you know, the rare instance of a violent act committed by an immigrant, as though in some way that, that is representative of the entire flow of refugees coming across our border. When they do that, there is an implicit conclusion that people are being led to, to say, 
these people are a threat to us. And these people who speak Spanish and come from south of the border and who happen to have brown colored skin, you know, these people need to be resisted. Yeah. And in the letter, you write a lot about the need for new leadership um, and to not be afraid of powerful Latino voices. Um, but I also have to think about, you know, our, our current our current leadership, because um, our own president um, uses many of those hateful phrases, um, not occasionally, but regularly. Um, and, and so w what kind of responsibility do leaders, do leaders like that bear when um, something so violent, like as what happened in El Paso happens? And, and what's their call to, to change? Well, I, I think we certainly have to call it out, mm -hmm. we as religious leaders. I have no desire whatsoever to get involved into um, I I politics. Not that there's anything bad about it. And, and it's important that citizens be, be involved in their government uh, and that they express themselves. But I'm a religious leader. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, but, and my responsibility isn't just to stay safe and unthreateningly within my, the walls of my church, but my call is to set forth Christian Catholic principles and do it clearly, and to be in some way a conscience or to stimulate the conscience of not only the Catholic community but the nation. That's the role of religion in society, and so and it's essential role. Um, and so when an individual or a group of people speak in a way that is contrary to these fundamental principles of the equal dignity of every person, um, then we need to speak out on this, as we in the Catholic faith have done and must continue to do effectively in the pro-life issue, uh, but, but also when it comes in other forms at any place on the spectrum of life. And I think maybe some of the subtle rhetoric rhetoric around this is, oh, well, the U.S. just can't handle this many more people or just can't handle um, these asylum seekers. But I think El Paso offers just, just quite yeah. a different uh, yeah. opportunity, I would say, because, you know, this spring there was a large uptick, yes. you know, in the number of migrants entering the U.S., particularly here in El Paso, and, and your community was able to really step up and show a really amazing hospitality. Um, so what do, you, what do you think is so special about El Paso and being able to provide that kind of hospitality and welcome? Yeah, you know, I am just completely unmoved by that argument that we can't handle anymore. God help us if we are, are that uh, unwilling to, to reach out to people in need. Uh, to say that, um, you know, when we received what is ultimately a, a minuscule flow of refugees compared to that which many other countries have experienced, in the wealthiest, most prosperous nation of the world, how, how selfish can you be, frankly? You know, and I, I know people have 
real fears, and I, I'd love to speak to those uh, fears, but but um, uh, yeah, but come on, <laughs> you know, the, Jordan has received uh, nearly two million. The, the little country of Jordan, Lebanon, even smaller, they've received about half again as much as their population in refugees. And I'm not saying that doesn't create issues in their country. It certainly does, you know. But what we've received is a fraction of 1%. Uh, and I, these people are not coming over to tie into our welfare system. The truth is, that we've excluded them from our welfare system. You know, uh, there are very few cases where they can receive any kind of aid, and they don't want it. They are hardworking people. That's all they know and all they want is the chance to, to support their children here. You know, uh, there's, they're, they're being brought to their, uh, the places where they'll stay initially by family members. Uh, it's not a government problem. And immigrant peoples are safer statistically than people born here. So if you're worried about uh, threats to your safety, start deporting people who were born here because they're the greater threat. I think often the family aspect gets lost yes. a lot as well, um, especially with derogatory things like chain migration and no, people move with their family. That's how people are, su oh. are supposed to move, you know? Yes. They, they want to be with their family. May I comment Why? on that? Please. <laughs> this uh, attack on family-based migration is one of the most um, con contradictory uh, threats to, to our nation that I can imagine uh, because it's being proposed as a protection. It will do exactly the opposite. When people are connected to family and community, that's when they can work together, pull themselves up, and, and because they're connected and integrated, they belong. But if you start saying, there, you may not, you can come here and work, but you can't, uh, if you have resources to impress us, but you can't bring your family, you know, you can't take care of the, the people that are important to you. Um, that's when you create the perfect seedbed for terrorism, frankly. And, and so many of our immigration policies create the exact opposite effect of what's being proposed, you know. Uh, and this is certainly one of them. Yeah. And um, you've been bishop here in El Paso since 2013? Correct. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, how has this uh, city and its character, you know, converted you and brought you closer to the gospel? That's a great way to ask the question. Converted me and brought me closer to the gospel. Oh, wow, isn't that great? I just feel so, uh, so blessed you know, that God has worked this way in my life. You know, it's uh, as a priest, you, you're you basically saying, Lord, I'm going to serve you however you want, and, and I'm going to be obedient to my superiors uh, because I believe that the Spirit will work that way. And this is one of those cases where I never would have imagined in my wildest dreams uh, as a kid growing up in Wisconsin, 
and then a priest of Dallas, that I would find myself in El Paso, Texas. Uh, but it has been such a blessing to me, and it has converted me, and it has called me more deeply into practicing the gospel uh, because this community is so rich in, in faith, and the opportunities here are, are such that you can truly live the gospel. Uh, I like to say that um, this, uh, this is a place where you cannot live the faith abstractly. <laughs> now, really, of course, any Christian should be able to say that wherever they are. But um, I just have to say, well, true. But more so here. <laughs> We've got all of the uh, challenges uh, and all of the opportunities to live the gospel here in a, in a wonderful way uh, on, on this border where God loves to work on the peripheries, as Pope Francis would say. Yeah. I thought one thing that was so beautiful about your letter for me was that, you know, you didn't shy away at all from clearly defining, you know, this is white supremacy, this is racism. Um, but you also sought to call everyone uh, to conversion, you know, and not to cast them out. And you said, mm -hmm. you know, you wrote, if there's anyone who feels so alone, so isolated and so tortured that you feel your only way out is to succumb to the darkness of racism and violence and to pick up a gun, I say to you today, there's a place for you in our community and our church. Lay aside your weapons of hate, put away your fear. Here there is a teacher, a sister, a deacon, a priest, a counselor, a bishop waiting to welcome you home and greet you with love, to Valles. I think a lot of people really struggle with a kind of naming sin, but then also calling people in at the same time. And, and you seem to, to do that so well. And, and how, how, do you, how do you approach that? And how do you think about yeah. those kind of things in tension and um, also cooperation? To me, it's just so gospel, so Jesus. It's the paradox of his teaching that he he came uh, to f to for us while, as Saint Paul says, we were still sinners. He loved us, uh, and and so uh, that has to be the way that we approach the the faith. Um, if you ever find yourself thinking in categories of us and them, the the good and the evil ones, uh, check yourself because those people you're calling them, those people you're calling other, they're the, the ones that Jesus told us we should love in a special way. Love your enemies. Do not hurt them. You know, um, if you love just those who love you, what good is that? Um, so, our love has to extend even, or shall I say, say especially to those that we're challenging, that we're confronting with the truth. Uh, it has to extend even to that, that man who took up his assault weapon on, on August 3rd. Uh, and uh, unless we're willing to do that, we haven't fully accepted the gospel. And I imagine this wonderful and family-oriented community is, is still struggling with a lot of grief and, and fear um, from, from that August 3rd day. Um, how can people who 
don't live in El Paso still um, support this community and also its sister city in Juarez? Yes, there is still a lot of healing to be done here. Uh, so many families were affected. 22 were killed. Another 26 were physically injured. But thousands of people were actually hurt by this event and in very direct ways. They were present in the Walmart. They had family who were present in the Walmart. Um, they were they were traumatized by these events, and more so, as I indicated earlier, not just because 22 individuals were killed and others hurt, but because it was an attack that was specifically directed against people of color. Uh, so the heart, the, the trauma is great. Uh, and certainly your prayers are the first and most important thing to offer us. Uh, beyond that, I think people have been extremely generous uh, to the victims and I, in their name, I thank you for that. We've raised, I believe, over $9 million for a fund. So I feel like the response to them has been incredible and it will be very helpful. Uh, but uh, two things I'd like to invite you to do if your heart has been moved and you would like to stand in solidarity with us here. Uh, number one, come and visit us. We are a place of welcome. Uh, in a way, it's one of the best responses to that attack is to say, is to come in friendship and love, you know, and know us and know the refugees personally. If you are the biggest um, uh, su supporter of, of um, closing down the border, uh, well, come on down, you know, <laughs> and, and just give us a chance to talk to you and uh, to let you uh, visit and see the reality here. Uh, secondly, um, if you would like to help us financially, uh, my biggest concern, as I mentioned, is not here on the El Paso side right now, but across at our sister city of Juarez. And we need to do something to, to assist those people there, uh, to assist those, assist those children and babies who fled their home uh, to save their lives and now are struggling to to protect and preserve their lives. So, uh, so help our Border Refugee Assistance Fund and, and to do that, just ex seek out uh, on your on the web the uh, website of the Diocese of El Paso, elpasodiocese.org, and you'll find right near the top of the page an opportunity uh, to to be part of this work that we're seeking to do for our brothers and sisters. All right. Thank you, Bishop. Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I know you've got a, a flight later this afternoon, um, but is there anything else you want to, to share with me or to share with our listeners? Well, just thank you very much for your, your interest and your concern. Uh, thank you for coming to El Paso and to see it in person. Uh, pray for us. And, uh, uh Thank you for the work of the Center for Migration S Studies and uh, 
and uh, let's continue to work together uh, in the name of Jesus Christ uh, to create uh, one great family of, of human beings uh, where people will see us and ask uh, or, or exclaim, see how they love one another. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by Daniel Duberstein and The Music Case. To get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org.